Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And what that, mean, what that word means is literally like, you can't pick them up. That's all it means. Like, it's not like putting it on your shoulders and you will buckle under them. But what it just means is like, you can't pick up what I'm laying down. It's just what I'm about to say to you, you're gonna need some help is what Jesus is saying. And so that's what's about to happen with the coming of the spirit. So you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said, that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we start by just glorifying you and thanking you that Jesus on the cross, you bore our sin and our shame. That through faith in you, we can be freed from the penalty of our sin. We could be freed from the things that has caught, uh, caused us so much shame. Our own sin, being sinned against, other people's sin, all of the things that have caused us shame, you've bore them on the cross. And through faith in you, through believing in you, we can experience genuine and true freedom from those things. We can experience genuine freedom from the shame. And so as we preach and as we talk about your word, may your word go to work through the power of the spirit on our hearts to free us. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. May we live free lives for your glory, Jesus, for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. Um, so I, I think I probably preach between 40 and 45 times a year over the, I think, eight plus years that I've been um, able to, to fill this role here at the Point Community Church was a great thing. And I will say this, that within those sermons, most of the time, most of the content that I'm preaching is original content. Like I'm not like, there, I, I read a thing where a pastor was just found out that he's preached another pastor's sermons for 25 years. So for 25 years, the congregation was listening to a dude puppet, right? Just like a ventriloquist, somebody else's sermons. And so 90% of the content, 90% of the time over those 40 to 45 sermons is original content, but this is not one of those sermons. This is a sermon that is that I heard a year, a little over a year ago. I was pre, I was, I was painting my deck, and I was listening to a, a pastors' conference, Ligonier's pastors' conference. Uh, the the subject matter was Pilgrims in Progress. I saw that. I love the book by John Bunyan, Pilgrims Progress. I was like, this is my jam. I was listening to it. A guy by the name of Steve Lawson that I dearly love phenomenal expositor. He preached a sermon entitled, We Buy Truth. As I listened to that sermon, I was like, I will preach that sermon when we get to John chapter 16. I can't wait. Since then, I've listened to that sermon probably five times. And so uh, you will notice some of it will be a little different in format. And that's why some of it, it's not just straight up. I mean, we could have just asked Steve Lawson to come preach it, but he was unavailable. And so uh, not all of it is, is, uh, is his, but nevertheless, I just wanna keep all things honest and that's true and it's good. Like I try to clean it up, but it's so pristine and it's so good and it's so true that hopefully it will. The Lord's gonna use it today as he's used it in my own life. Let's start here. We know what Jesus thought 
and what Jesus believed about the Old Testament. As we read the gospels and we see the life and ministry of Jesus, we see a Jesus who, who submitted to the Old Testament. We see what Jesus believed about the Old Testament. You can always even go back to the, uh, the, Jesus's temptation in the wilderness when he's tempted of Satan. And Satan comes and three times ta- Satan tempts Jesus. And what does Jesus do? How does Jesus refute and, and, and fight off that temptation? How does he destroy the work of the enemy in those moments? What does he use? He uses the Bible. He uses the Old Testament. And in this, we see that Jesus believed that the Old Testament was authoritative. He believed that it had authority. He believed that it came from the Father. It came from God. He saw that that God's promises stood true over all of Satan's temptations. Second, not only, and you can maybe write, you can start here by writing these down. They won't be on the screen, but he believed in the authority of the Bible. Also, Jesus believed in the sufficiency of the Old Testament. In that first temptation, when Satan came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, exercise your power. Jesus is fasting in that time. Exercise your power and turn these rocks into into bread. Turn these stones into bread. What Jesus says is, um, you know, uh, he he quotes Deuteronomy, uh, I think chapter eight, whenever he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what's Jesus saying there? That we need more than bread to give us sustenance in life. That your temptation is powerless here. I'm not gonna exercise my power. I'm not gonna do that because I'm living by what God gives, not just what like I can produce in that, in that moment. That we need God's, God's truth to fill our mind. That God's word has power to sustain us. He believed in the sufficiency of the Old Testament. Jesus believed in the immutability of the Old Testament. And what we mean by immutability is simply this, that it does not change and it will come to pass. Jesus will say in Matthew 5, 8, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. That's what Jesus believed about the Old Testament. But what did Jesus believe about the New Testament? The New Testament will be written after Jesus's death, after Jesus's ascension. Were the, were the apostles just working on their own, writing the New Testament, the apostles and their associates? Were they acting on their own authority whenever they wrote the gospel accounts or Luke writes the Luke and then also Acts? Or whenever Paul and Peter write uh, and John write the epistles or whenever John writes Revelation, were they working on their own? We know what Jesus believed about the first 39 books of the Old Testament, but what about the next 27 that will come after Jesus's ascension? But that's what we have here in this text. What we have here in this text is we have Jesus making a promise to his associates, I mean, to his apostles, to his disciples who will become apostles. He has the promise and here's the promise that the Holy Spirit will come and the Holy Spirit will produce the New Testament. That's in essence what's happening in this text. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a promise here. The promise is the helper's gonna come and the helper's gonna guide you into all truth, but more than just guiding you because the guide's just out there coaching you, turn right, turn left. It's not just like GPS and guiding you in all the truth. You may hit it, you may not hit it, right? Does anybody like not follow the GPS to the T and thought, well, I know better than the GPS and you don't end up in the destination. Like it's just a guide here. You know, I tell my wife, like I know where I'm going. I don't need this thing to tell me where I'm going, right? It's not working like that because beyond just guiding, Jesus says he will also speak directly and he will declare to them to lead them to the truth. But what specifically is Jesus speaking about here? 
What's the promise of the New Testament that will come from them and from their associates? We have in this text is Jesus is commissioning. He's pre-authenticating, if you will. He's pre-validating the New Testament, the yet to be written New Testament. What he's saying is the Holy Spirit is going to come and the Holy Spirit is going to reveal the truth to you. You're gonna write it down and this truth will glorify me. Jesus is declaring that not all of Revelation has been written in the Old Testament. There's still some more to come. That's what he's saying here. More revelation is going to come and it's going to come to you from from ultimately the Father through the Spirit to you. And you're gonna be my instruments and you're gonna write it down and then the, the Lord is going to use it. It's going to glorify me. So a couple of things that we'll make note of and then we'll dive into them that Jesus believed and Jesus is declaring and teaching here about the New Testament. Number one, Jesus is saying that the New Testament will be divine in origination. It will not be the product of men, but it will be ultimately the product of the Trinity, of God, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Number two is the New Testament will be the truth. Talk a ton about that. He says, he will take all that is mine. What's he talking about? When Jesus says, the spirit will take all that is mine. What he's talking about is divine revelation, that Jesus is God. He is the the manifestation of divine revelation. He's not talking about possessions here. What the possession he's speaking of is revelation of who God is. He will take all that is mine. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in me. Paul will say about Jesus. He's gonna take all of that and he's gonna make it known to you. You're gonna come into greater understanding of all of that. That's what he's speaking about. The New Testament is the truth. Next, the New Testament will be sufficient, Jesus is saying here. Look at what he says. He will guide you into all the truth. Not into some truths, but into all the truth. It's sufficient. Not partial truths, but all the truths. We also see in this text, the subject of the New Testament The subject of the New Testament is to instruct and to declare of the things that are to come. What are the things that are to come? Well, the new covenant, the age of the church, the gospel, the work of the indwelling spirit. Those are the things that are yet to come. And those are, that's the subject matter that Jesus is making known. The spirit is making known in the New Testament. And lastly, the ultimate purpose of the entire Bible, but most assuredly of the New Testament is this, that he will glorify me, that it will glorify Jesus we keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing in the Bible is Jesus, certainly not us. All right, you ready? That's the outline. We've got a lot of work to do. And then we're gonna talk about how to respond to that. So we'll get there. Here we go. Number one, the New Testament will be divine in origination. Look at verse number 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth and he will not speak on his own authority. That's the important part. But whatever he hears, this is the Holy Spirit here, the third person of the Trinity. And yet he surrendered and submitted to the authority of the Father. Whatever he hears, then he will speak those things to you. He will declare it to you. He will instruct you in, in the things that are to come. This is what we believe about the Bible. It's called the doctrine of inspiration. We believe because this is what Jesus believed because this is what Jesus is saying here that the Bible is inspired of God. That means that the Bible is, it is breathed out by God. That Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. 
It is theonoustos. It is what's happening, not because I'm not God, but what is happening right now as I preach, as I speak, that air is being generated in my body, through my lungs. It is passing across my vocal cords, making my vocal cords vibrate. And then words are being formed by my mouth as I speak out words, right? And the same thing is happening when we read the Bible is God is breathed out. He's spoken the Bible to us. God's breath, as you would, have been, has been captured by the Spirit. It's been captured by human authors to be written down that God has spoke to them. The whole Trinity has at work in producing the Bible. The Father speaks, the Spirit listens, then the Spirit guides, the Spirit speaks, the Spirit declares to the apostles and the associates, then the, the human authors of the New Testament and then Jesus is the primary subject and Jesus is glorified by all of this. And what Paul says there, since the Bible doesn't come from man, but since the Bible comes from God, since the Bible is authoritative, it is profitable. How is it a profitable? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, right? For, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's back to the sufficiency part. So I remember years ago when I was a senior in high school in like 1992, I remember I did a, I did a, I, I had to do a survey and write a position paper in a logic class. And my position paper was this position that the Bible wasn't from man, but the Bible was from God. And I had to go through and I'd ask students and ask teachers and I asked the custodian, and ask the lunch lady, do you believe the Bible is from man or from God? And it was overwhelmingly that people said, well, the Bible is from man but that is not what the Bible declares to be about itself. And listen, that's not what Jesus believed the Bible to be. Jesus here, as we see this in this text of scripture, Jesus is declaring, and this isn't just like, oh, this is an anomaly in scripture. Throughout scripture, both Jesus, Paul, Peter, all of the apostles all declare the Bible isn't from man, but the Bible is from God. And I think history, as we talk about often, bears this out to be as well, that this book is different than any other book. No other book is like the book that you and I hopefully hold right now in your hand, possibly that is on your uh, uh, phone or whatever other device you may use. The book that is beside your bedside or on your coffee table or in the trunk of your car or wherever it may be, it is different than any other book. I've got tons of books in my office, all of them all lined up in a row, but they are not lined up in a row in authority or in purpose or in authorship. The Bible is on the top shelf, not just because that's where I put it. It is on the top shelf to remind even me that all other books, and there are great books out there, but all other books pale in comparison to what the Bible is. The Bible is what we hold in our hands. It is the very word of God. That's what Jesus is saying. The Father is going to speak it out. The Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, he is going to hear it and then he is going to speak it, guide it, declare it to you and you're gonna write it down. That's basically what he's saying. Number one, the Bible is, it's authoritative. It's God inspired, it's from God. But number two, also the Bible is the truth. When the Spirit of truth, that's another name for the Holy Spirit. It's been called the paraclete, the helper, the comforter. And here he is specifically called, he's the spirit of truth. When he comes, he will guide you into all the truth. That Jesus declares not just that the New Testament will be true. This is important. 
Jesus is declaring not just that the New Testament will be true, but that it will be the truth, singular, one system of truth. Not just that it's gonna be true, and it's true, but that it will be the truth. In just a few minutes in this text, Jesus will leave, the the disciples will all leave out of this upper room where they've been since John 13, since he's washed their feet, had the Lord's Supper together, been declaring and speaking these things to them. And in just a few minutes, they're gonna leave and Jesus is gonna go out into a garden and Jesus is gonna begin to pray. This is John now, it'll be John 17. And as Jesus prays, one of his prayers for his disciples and even for us, he will say this, sanctify them in the truth. That's it, sanctify them. Set them apart, call them out, make them godly with the truth. And then he goes on to say, your word is truth. So what is truth? When Jesus says here that your word is, when he prays your word is truth, what does Jesus mean by this? Well, simply this, if I could sum it up in one word, it would be this, reality. That's what the truth is. The truth is reality. In this world are lies and falsehoods and deception and half-truths. And as we tell our kids, a half-truth is a whole lie. In this world is all of that. And this is John chapter eight, but in God, we have the truth. And what is the truth? Well, the truth is reality. Paul will write, I think in 1 Corinthians that we see now in a mirror, in a glass, we see it dimly but then we will see in the future, we will see face to face. What does Paul mean by that? Well, he means like, it's like if you were to look through a glass or if you were to look through a, into a mirror and somebody had smeared it over with Vaseline, there'd be an image there, but the image would be marred. It would be disfigured, right? That's what sin has done to us. Even when we look into what we think is reality, oftentimes that reality is marred. It's been smeared over with Vaseline. We could see an image there, but it's in a distorted image, but the truth is there, right? Even though you can't see it because of the Vaseline, remove the sin, remove the Vaseline. Oh, now I see what the image is. That's what the truth is. It is a description of reality. For those of you that are internet savvy and remember on Facebook a couple of years ago, do you remember the whole internet craze with the colored dress. And so there's a colored dress and it's like, well, which one is it? Is it, I don't remember, like blue gold or is it white yellow or something like that? And everybody's going, oh, it's this color and this color and we're taking it out by popular poll. Let me tell you that right there drove me insane. Like my prophetic edge about me was just like, that's the problem with this culture, Luann, is they think truth is relative. It's what you think. Listen, the dress is a color. Like that's what I can, Find the dress and it is a color. It doesn't matter what the color looks like to you or whatever, whatever the photograph or the lighting, that dress is a color and that's the truth. The truth is reality. It's what the color is. It doesn't matter how you perceive it. It doesn't matter how you see it. There is a reality that is out there. Truth is not relative. Truth is the way that that things really are. It's not how things may appear to be. It's not how we want things to be. It's not what most people say something is. It's not what the opinion polls may indicate. It's not what is popular to people. It's not what the culture says something is. It's not what majority vote says something is. It's not what society says something is. Instead, truth is how things really are. That when Jesus speaks about the truth, He means that, he means this, truth that is divine. 
And in fact, he is saying here, truth is divine. It flows from God. That truth comes down from above. That truth proceeds from God. That truth does not originate in this world. It does not come up from this world. The truth must come from God himself. Truth must come by divine revelation. That even the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the third person in the Trinity, even he listens, hears, submits, and then speaks under the authority of the Father. That God the Father is the author of all truth. God the Father is the source of all truth. God the Father is the determiner of all truth. God the Father is the governor of all truth. God the Father is the arbitrator of all truth. He is the standard of all truth. He is the final judge of all truth. Jesus is the personification of that truth. Jesus is truth incarnate. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the, right? The truth and the life. That since Jesus is God, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. He is the perfect revelation of truth. He is, as I said, truth incarnate. Not only is truth um, the reality, but we can also say this, truth is absolute. Truth is absolute. And by this, what we mean is truth is not relative. It is not relative. There's not one truth for you and a different truth for me. There's not one truth here in the Bible Belt and a different truth in other areas. There's not a truth in the South that's different than the truth in the North or the truth in the East. No, truth is absolute. And because, and because truth is absolute, truth transcends cultures. It transcends regions. It transcends nations. Truth is objective. And by objective, we mean that truth is not based upon feelings. Truth is not subjective to our feelings. Our feelings may fluctuate, but truth does not fluctuate. It does not fluctuate like our feelings. The truth is conveyed with clearly defined words, words that have precise meanings. Truth is conveyed in words that are understandable. Truth is concrete. Truth is black and white. Truth is, some, is true regardless of how anyone feels about it. So it is true whether it subjectively speaks to your heart or whether it does not subjectively speak to your heart. It does not change whether or not it is true. Do you remember the first natural law that you found out was true? Do you remember the first like natural, right? You remember your first, first science project you ever worked on? what natural law that you figured out, it was probably the one of gravity, right? Whether it was like as a toddler, when you said, hey, mom, dad, watch me fly. Or whenever you were riding your bike as a, you know, eight or 10 year old, and you, hey, mom, look, no hands. And then, hey, mom, look, no teeth, right? That's usually what follows after that, right? Or whether it was whether you were stumbling, trying to stumble around and learn to walk, like the first true right? The first natural law, the first truism that you submitted and figured out was the truth of gravity. That gravity does not submit to you. You submit to gravity because gravity is an objective truth. It is an objective law. 
It exists whether you like it or not, right? It exists whether you recognize it or not. You can try to deny it, but then jump. But then jump and see what happens. And ultimately, gravity wins. That what God has spoken, what God has decreed, what God has declared, what God has revealed, that truth is, by his divine, authoritative, and absolute word, that you and I are responsible to know that. We're responsible to that. We're responsible to be aware of that. We're responsible to be informed of that. Ignorance doesn't matter. Subjective feelings don't matter. None of those things matter. That whatever God has declared it to be, it is. That truth is whatever God said something is, that is what it is. So man is whatever God has declared man to be. Sin is whatever God has declared sin to be. It's not subjective to us to say, ah, it's really not that bad. Oh, I know what the Bible says there, but I'm not gonna do it. You'll be held accountable to the truth. It's there, black and white, concrete, being red. Heaven is whatever God says heaven is. Hell is whatever God says hell is. The final judgment is whatever God says it is. The path and the way of salvation is whatever God has declared it to be. It is true. He's declared it. It's true. Whether we feel about it, what we think about it, I would have done it this way, that way. As as Paul writes in Romans 9, who are you, man? Who are you? To speak back to the pot, does the clay, as Paul says, have any rights over the potter? Can he say, hey, potter, you should have shaped me in a different way? No, you're not. Paul's saying there, you got to know your role. And, G- and God is the one who's in control. God is the one who is absolute. God is the one who's the arbitrator over all truth. Next, look at this. Truth is sufficient. Truth is sufficient. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will guide them into all the truth. Now, the Bible doesn't tell you how to change the oil in your Kia, right? I mean, there's maybe some principles in there you can use when you go to do it, but ultimately, like, it doesn't tell you that. The Bible doesn't tell you how to do brain surgery. The Bible doesn't tell you. There's a lot of things that the Bible doesn't declare to you. So there are true things that are outside of the Bible, but yet we can say this, that everything in the Bible is true and everything in the Bible is sufficient for life and for godliness. Everything. That's what Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory. Everything that you and I need for life and for godliness is found within the scriptures. It's found within God's truth that he has revealed to us. And what this means is that you cannot know God apart from the truth. You cannot be saved apart from the truth. You cannot be sanctified apart from the truth. You cannot worship God apart from the truth. You cannot serve God apart from the truth. That you and I, our job is to have an accurate understanding of the way that things really are. Again, the truth being reality. That you and I, we should accurately understand who God is. You and I need to accurately understand who we are. You and I must accurately understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do and the way of saving grace. It is the truth that you and I, it's by the truth that you and I enter into a relationship, into fellowship with God. It's by the truth that you and I are made right 
to God. That's not on us. That's not something we've conjured up. Doctrines such as um, the doctrine of faith alone, that's not something justification by faith. That's not something that we wrote. That's not something that Martin Luther said, hey, this sounds like a good idea. No, what happened was Martin Luther read the Bible. He opened up this book and as he opened up this book, it informed his mind of the way of salvation. And then he started saying, hey, this is how God's declaring for us to be saved. It's not through our works, it's not through religion, but it's gonna be through faith in Christ's work and Christ alone. So let's like nail 99 theses to a wall and let's get right here, boys and girls. And they said, no, we don't wanna do that. And they refuted it, but where did all of that come from? It came from the Bible black and white, red, because God has revealed it to him. The problem was they put tradition and man's interpretation far above what the Bible said. And the Bible speaks plainly. It's got plain things in it. And the plain things are the main things. And we keep the main things, the plain things in the Bible. So why we don't preach a lot about all this other kind of craziness. We preach the gospel and how people ought to be saved and how people ought to live. Why do we preach that? Because it's plainly written in scriptures. And scripture's given to us everything that you and I need for life and for godliness. What if I told you that majority of your problems and your sorrows come from lies? Lies that you believe, lies that you, some of you believe deep down about yourself or about the way God works, or about who God is or the way of salvation or life, you believe lies and the truth comes to set us free. The truth comes that Jesus gives us is the truth that sets us free. Our job is to know the truth. We enter into Christian life by the truth. We mature in the faith by the truth, by reading it, submitting to it, learning, filling our minds with it, being transformed by it. We are to pursue the truth. It's a humble quest of knowledge, not just knowledge to know, but again, Jesus is truth personified. And as we gain understanding of who Jesus is and grow in, in Jesus, we're gaining a relationship with Christ. We're coming to know him more and more. Close out here. Last few minutes, I wanna put, how do we then respond to the truth? How should we respond to the Bible, to the revelation of God in his word? How should we respond to the spirit produced authoritative word of God? How are you and I to respond to that? Well, um, six of them. You ready? Number one, receive it. It says a ton about your heart. But number one, how do we respond to the truth? Well, number one, receive it. Humble yourself to it. Quit standing over it and submit yourself to it. Quit making excuses about your disobedience and get obedient, repent, turn. Submit yourself to it. As I've already said, you cannot know God apart from the truth. You cannot come into a saving relationship, a saving union apart to submission to the truth, the truth of who God is, the truth of who you are, the truth of the, what Jesus is or who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in the path of salvation through believing him. Receive it, receive truth into your life and receive the truth into your life and it will be well with your soul. You refuse God's truth and you will be in a perilous state. Receive the truth, receive it by faith, receive it with all your heart, receive it into your mind from the pages of scripture. Number one, you receive it, that's humility. Number two, read it. First, we receive it. Number two, read it. 
if this book is what Jesus claims this book to be, how could we ever be okay with it laying on our bedside for weeks on end? If this book that we hold in our hands is what Jesus claims for it to be, how can we be okay going days, weeks, some of us maybe even months without opening it and reading it and taking it in? Read the truth. You and I, we must allow God's truth to fill up our minds. We must seek for ways to incorporate it into our lives. Receive it, read it. Three, meditate upon it. Now, I know in our culture, meditation's popular to some degree. Some of you may know. And like a lot of time in Eastern religions and other things, when they talk about meditating, what they're talking about is they're talking about emptying your mind, going to a state of emptiness where you're relaxed and in a deep state of relaxation where you're no longer thinking about anything. That is the very opposite of what the Bible means when it tells us to to meditate upon it. It's not talking about emptying your mind. It's talking about the opposite. It's talking about filling your mind with something. That we are to meditate. We're to let the truths and the doctrines and the teachings and the example and the promises and the warnings, we're to allow them to fill our minds and to flood our hearts. As an old cow, this is my grandfather, I think this is one of, one of his lines. As an old cow would be out there chewing out in her field, chewing on her cud. So that, well, she, she's out there chewing on it. That's like what you and I should be doing with God's word. We should be constantly chewing on it, letting it fill our hearts, letting it fill our minds over and over. We're to be taking in God's truth, chewing on the truth, digesting it into our lives. Number four, have a reverence for it. Revere it. That every time we open God's word, we should stand in awe of it. That's why we say, would you rise for the reading of God's word? It's a, it's a sign of honor that we have here at the Point Community Church. But again, we honor the Lord in our hearts, not with just our actions. That we could stand up, right? We could stand for God's word and not have any reverence in our heart, not have any honor in our heart. We could stand up and be like, oh God, here we go again. What, how long is this mug going to preach this week? And we're bringing dishonor to the reading of God's word. Every time you open God's word, there should be a reverence for it. You should stand in awe of it. I'm not saying worship the Bible, but I'm saying allow it to lead you to the one. It reveals the one who we are to worship. It's the only sufficient revelation of God. There is no other book like the Bible. John Calvin said this, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. We should have a reverence for that. Number five, we rejoice in it. Rejoice in the word. Let the Bible thrill your soul. Let the Bible take you to your greatest source of joy, Jesus. We should find great comfort in this book, even in our darkest hours of the night. We should let this book lift us up when we are down. We should let this book encourage us when we are discouraged. A few years ago, Pastor Tony Cecil wrote, wrote a blog article when we were working, actually we were working through Romans the eighth chapter and we challenged everybody to meditate on Romans the eighth chapter and even to memorize Romans the eighth chapter. And Pastor Tony wrote this, I'll read a short excerpt because this is what I'm talking about. 
Pastor Tony said, I have a dream about dying. Yeah, I know that's a little bit morbid and people tell me I'm morbid, so maybe I am. But in this dream, I'm lying in a hospital bed, suffering. I'm in pain. I'm surrounded by my wife and my kids and my grandkids. And as I go through the process of dying, it's an ugly and horrid experience. It involves much weeping from my wife and my kids and my grandkids and even me. And as I've personally witnessed before in ministry, Satan is trying his best to arouse questions about God's goodness in their minds and in my minds and to cause our faith to falter. But then in my dream, in the midst of the suffering and the tears and the temptation, we receive strength and comfort and a reminder from the Holy Spirit as I began to quote these words from my heart. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with all the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. May God's word be a source of encouragement to us. Lastly, trust it. Rely upon it. The Bible is a trustworthy guide. It is a more sure of the it is more sure of the path that you should take than anything else. Here's the truth. The Bible has never once missteered you. The Bible has never once misguided you. The Bible has never once misdirected you. That whenever you cannot see your way in this dark world, hold forth <clears throat> the truth that is found in this word. Like a lamp, this word, world, this word will shine and let it shine and you will see dangers that are encroaching and you will also see the narrow path that is to take. Inside one of the Bibles in my office and I looked, like I said, I got so many of them, I looked and my grandfather gave me a Bible, good grief, <clears throat> 30 years ago, my grandfather gave me a Bible and inside of that Bible he wrote, The light, the light of this word will lead you home. And maybe you're here this morning and this world doesn't feel like home. Maybe you're here this morning and you maybe feel like some way, somehow you lost your way. Maybe someday at a young age, you began a journey toward, like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, you, you began a journey towards the celestial city. You began a journey towards heaven. You began a journey towards being a godly man, a godly woman, and somewhere along the way, you've lost your way. Fallen down, you've off the path. The light of God's word will lead you home.
if you've been with us here at the Point Community Church any length of time, hopefully there's one thing you could say about us. We are a people of the book. We are a people of the Bible. We have a high view of the Bible because that's all we got. It leads us to Jesus. It reveals Jesus. It teaches Jesus. It's all we have. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this promise that we find here in your beautiful text of scripture. The promise of the spirit coming and leading us and guiding us into all the truth. Jesus, as we come and we prepare our hearts and we prepare ourselves to take of the Lord's Supper to remember you, Jesus, would you do a work on our hearts? That there may be a place where we're living out a lie. There may be a place where we're believing a lie. That we've justified a sin or we've justified unforgiveness. We've justified an action. We've justified laziness. We've justified something incongruent with your declared word, your truth. And I pray, Lord, that that's, that's what it means to be a Christian, it means we're following after you as you have revealed yourself, the God of the Bible. And I pray that you would make that known to us, that that grieves the spirit. It's sinful. It's what Jesus is, what you've come to deal with. And I pray, Lord, in this moment, that we would bring our feelings in to, subje to subjection to your declaration from your word. And where repentance is necessary, we would repent. And Jesus, may we stand in awe of you and stand in awe of your word. And may we come even this morning with hearts of gratitude. You've not left us to our own. You've not left us to grope in the darkness. You've not left us to be devoured by Satan's temptations and the lies, but you have given us the truth and the truth has set us free. And I pray that for us. In your name we pray, amen.